You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. Thanks for gathering at the church this morning. We're in the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians as we're going through the Bible in a year. I really want to encourage you to check out our equip classes tonight. A great opportunity to go deeper in your faith, to have just great environments that can help you know more of the scriptures, follow Jesus better. Love for you to be here at 5 o'clock tonight uh, for that. Uh, one, one part of our church family, Logan Hurst, uh, is in the hospital right now with COVID, and it's very serious. Uh, to the point where his wife texted me this morning and said, will you please have the church pray for him by name? And I said, of course, you know, absolutely. That's what we do. You know, we're family here. Uh, so I just want to uh, begin our time today uh, by, by praying for him and that the Lord will heal him uh, because we, I'm just being really frank and honest, like we need a miracle from God uh, for his life. And um, God is certainly able to do that. So we will pray together now. Let's pray together. Father, we Lift up Logan to you right at this moment. Lord, we ask you heal him, that you heal his lungs, that you be with the doctors. We are so thankful for our healthcare professionals here in this community. Lord, we thank you for the gift they are. Lord, we ask you give them strength and knowledge and wisdom to continue to care for all the people in this community right now who are sick. Lord, we lift up Logan and his family to you right now. We ask that you heal him. That is our prayer, that you heal him. We ask you to be with Cassie right now, his whole family. And God, we just ask that you allow him to heal and recover. Lord, we know you are able, you are the great healer, so we lift that to you. I also pray for our nation, uh, for as the 20th anniversary of 9-11 just passed us, we ask you to be with those families who are still hurting to this day long after the memorial services are over and we move on to the next thing, they're still hurting right now. So Lord, we ask for your comfort upon their lives. We lift up our country to you. We ask just for healing for so many things in our nation. We're a nation desperate for Jesus. Lord, and we ask that you intervene and that you save souls and turn individuals to you, to faith in Christ, the only one who saves, the way, the truth, the life. Lord, I ask you to speak through me this morning, that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our community, that you be with all the churches as we gather, that we will come to an understanding and really actually believe that nothing is more important than faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the church. Again, we ask you to be with Logan today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So some background here. And the book of Acts chapter 18 helps us kind of see and understand what's happening in Corinth. After this, he left Athens, this is Paul, who's out church planting, and he went to Corinth, a very cosmopolitan city, heavy in commerce, innovation for the first century, kind of hip, trendy, young, cool place to live. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them. And since they are the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. What's the persuasion? What's the message? That Jesus actually is the Messiah, that he is Lord. And we see this, there's there's hostility, but in verse 8 we see what God is doing in this city. He says, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. They came to faith in Christ, repented of their sins, repented to the gods of this world, of the gods of this world, to following Jesus. And they were baptized. This symbol of new life, kind of working out the story of the gospel through your baptism. We get a chance on October 3rd to do that here and celebrate on Baptism Sunday. A a scriptural precedent, a scriptural event. So what does he do? He starts a church. 
He starts a church in Corinth because God's strategy for getting the gospel out throughout the Bible is always churches. It's starting new churches in communities that are going to preach God's word and make disciples. We see in verse 11, he stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them, investing his life, even working on the side as a tent maker to make ends meet. A year and a half investing, and then he established elders of the churches, and once they're stable, he moves off to the next place to go plant another church. So now he's in another area, and he gets word there's struggles going on at the church in Corinth. There's drama, there's issues, anything from high-maintenance people to false teachings to divisions and just in general to immorality and sin. So he gets word of this. This church that was planted, he was there a year and a half, invested his life, appoints elders, starts a church, then he leaves and all of a sudden he hears that there's chaos. One pastor preached a sermon series to the book of 1 Corinthians and he called the sermon series Church Gone Wild because that's kind of a glimpse of what was happening here. So Paul writes a letter to them, writes several letters actually, based on a letter he received from them that was telling them how bad things were and also asked them some certain questions that were happening they wanted answers towards. So it begins like this, for it has been reported to me about you, not great news, like kind of getting called the principal's office here, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, Chloe had people, so she was pretty important, but there's rivalry among you. And there's so much she's gonna cover in this book you know when you've got a lot of issues with somebody and you sit down and the first thing out of your mouth is, I don't even know where to start? This is kind of the tone that's going to happen here. He's not even sure where to start. So says there's rivalry among you. Let's just start there. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas or I belong to Christ, which that's not Jesus Christ, literally. That's what's called the Christ party, which is another faction of division. And he goes, is Christ divided? Was Paul, me, was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? He said, I got word about what was going on in Corinth where I stayed with you a year and a half and got to know you that, that things aren't good. And I care because God cares about his church. And the first thing I'm hearing is that there's divisions among you. And he says that some are saying they're with Apollo, some with Cephas, some with this person. And he goes, wait, wait a second here. Christ isn't divided. Our loyalty is not to people. That's not to say we can't have leaders or theologians or teachers or mentors we admire. Paul himself said, follow my example as I follow Christ. That's in 1 Corinthians 11. That's not a contradiction. He's saying, where, how do we get to the point where these things can divide us? And isn't it interesting as we see a very divided church in America today that this is nothing new. It just looks different. It has different characters, different topics, different issues. This is nothing new and has to be addressed over and over again. A whole book of the Bible begins by talking about divisions and disunity. So for them might have been Apollos or Peter, this faction, this faction. He's better, this one's better. He knows more than you. This person's deeper, whatever it might be. Today we see a church divided across America. And people think that it started in 2016, but I would say it started in the first century, and Corinth is an example of that. When we lose focus of the actual point of what we're about, which is Jesus Christ, his mission, his gospel, his glory, when we lose focus of that, we're bound to drift to something else. And we're almost going to switch righteousness sources. 
And here's what's happening here, is they're feeling righteous because they belong to Apollos' group or Peter's group or Paul's group. Paul's saying, no, the source of our righteousness and unity in church is Jesus Christ and his name. I wonder if he wrote the letter today, he would say, there's divisions among you. Some of you aren't speaking to a family member anymore because of the 2016 election. Some of you have lost friendships, he would say, over whether to get vaccinated or not. Some of you no longer go to the same church you used to go to because of disagreements over things that aren't even in the Bible. And he's saying this is a problem. But listen to his tone here. Chapter four matters. He says, this is hard for people again. He's been there a year and a half and invested in these folks. I'm not writing this to shame you. That's not my tactic, that's not my motive, that's not my posture, but to warn you as, dear, as my dear children. He saw himself as a spiritual father to these people. I'm not writing this to put you down a guilt trip, he's saying, or to shame you, or to make you feel lesser, or that God's abandoned you. No, I'm warning you, this is not the way of God's people. We need to be united in Christ. And then he talks about their role in the culture. Because again, in a place like Corinth, there's gonna be a temptation to try to fit in, to try to show that you're kind of hip and cool. You're not one of those old-fashioned, out-of-date Christians. He says, but here's what you need to know. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are lost, in other words, those who don't know Jesus. But it's the power of God to us who are being saved. As in the world's wisdom and God's wisdom are, are two different planets. They can't even relate or understand each other. One sees it as foolishness, we see it as power. See, Christianity was never designed to be impressive. Impressive? The one called the Messiah carrying his own cross to the top of the hill and dying? Mocked and shamed? Christianity was never designed to make the world go, oh, wow how amazing they are. He goes for the Jews, ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But you know what we do instead? We're trying to stay focused here. We preach Christ, crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews who want to reject him as the Messiah, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles who think they're intellectually superior and just kind of mock us and laugh. Yet to those who are called, as in two salvation, who know Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, it's for all people, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he said, you make sure you know this as you live your life in Corinth and go to school and go to work and go out in a surrounding culture that's hostile to what you believe, that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. He wants them to have that conviction because you have to have that in a secular society to survive as a Christian. And to believe this and to realize this, and chapters one through four really deal with those divisions and lifts up the wisdom of God compared to the foolishness of man. And the answer he gives these divisions is simply more of the gospel. It's more of Christ. You see, the key to us following Jesus and doing it faithfully is not just us following rules. That, that's a way lower category. It's rather our affections growing for Christ. Us believing the gospel more, growing to love Jesus even more, it's easy to believe the gospel is something you just sort of believe when you, to get saved and then move on. You kind of graduate to other things. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z. It's the entire story. It's the whole point. It's what we bank our entire hope on. He says this, it is from him that you were in Christ Jesus 
who became wisdom from God for us. He says, you know what he is? He is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because he's the one who died for us. He's the one who saved us. Not the world's wisdom, not our favorite leader, not the one who's inspired us the most in this life. It's Jesus. He's the one who is our righteousness. And if we're going to grow, it's going to be in Christ, that he's going to be the banner in which all this flows under. Then he shifts gears, and through chapter 5 through 7, he talks about sexual immorality. Because in the letter that he received, he received reports that the Christians in Corinth were full-blown involved in sexual immorality in their city. And this accusation right here is really strong. Chapter five, verse one, listen to this. It's actually reported, again, he's receiving information, that there's sexual immorality among you. It's like, okay, that's a problem, we know that, but then listen to what he says. And the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Like, the church of Jesus Christ, Christians, are living in a manner the unbelievers think is even crazy. That's how you know there's massive problems. And then he tells them that God's sexual ethics are not just for the sake of sexual ethics. It's not rules for the sake of rules. It's not kill joy. It's not just simply trying to keep you from something. He's not trying to create some Amish village or a convent. He says this, however, the body, each one of us, God has given us a body, is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord, as in it's not for our glory, it's for God's glory, and the Lord for the body. It says God raised up the Lord, it always goes back to the gospel, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Because don't you know, we talked about this and I was there for a year and a half, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Like this claim we have in our 21st century world of self-autonomy, my body, I can do whatever I want with it, is strictly contradictory to the scriptures. It is ultimately not our body, it's God's body. Like he is the one who has created it. He goes, should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? He says, absolutely not, because he got word that the Christians were going, this is first century, different culture, different time, down to the temple. It was a pagan, secular temple, an idolatrous temple, and one of the acts they did there they called worship was the people would engage in prostitution at the temple. So now these Christians are trying to kind of make Christianity and their secular pagan religion sort of come together and to excuse it, trying to kind of invent their own kind of Christianity that worked for the things they wanted to do. And Paul's saying, hold on here. Should I take Christ's body, again, not your body ultimately, Christ's, and join it to a prostitute? And it's important to know in this text that the point of his being upset has nothing to do with prostitution. It's not very controversial to suggest that one shouldn't sleep with a prostitute. We could say things like, one, it's very demeaning to women who are fellow image bearers of God. It's illegal there's health issues, there, there's so many things. It, it fuels sex trafficking. There's so many reasons why they go, yes, that's bad, that's bad. That's not his point here. He says, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? 
for scripture says, and he goes back to Genesis to help them understand what's happening here. The two will become one flesh. Now when God says that about Adam and Eve, he's, t- he's not saying that marriage is, he's letting us know that marriage is definitely more than sex, but it's not less. That when you engage sexually with someone, you become one flesh with them. That's how God designed it to be. It's supposed to be that way. So do not take what God has given us, this gift in marriage, and take it somewhere else. Now thank God for those who have sinned here. There's hope, and in this passage there's hope. In 1 Corinthians 6 he says, some of you used to do this but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been made new, that God has forgiven you, has given you a new life. But he contrasted, the two become one flesh, but here's something better, but anyone joined the Lord is one spirit with him. Because our union with Christ is what the marriage institution actually points us to. The oneness of a husband and a wife points us to our union, our oneness we have with the Lord. So what's his response? There's no nuance here. He says, flee sexual immorality. Flee, like get out. The Greek word there is the word we have for fugitive. Remember the movie, The Fugitive? It's that understanding. You're fleeing, you're on the run. Then he lets us know that all sins aren't equal. I don't know where we got that from. It's kind of like an American Christian sort of urban legend that all sins are the same. The Bible doesn't say that. Now, all sins are the same in the fact that they all make us guilty before God and they all have to be forgiven. So in that sense, all sins are the same. But the consequences on earth of sins are different. He says that every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. The person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. And he brings back that don't you know. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. See, Christians, we think differently about the body. It's not me, what I wanna do, my autonomy. No, you were purchased by Christ at the cross. So glorify God with your body. And in this context, people love to use the whole body as a temple type of idea. They talk about like yoga or vegetables or whatever it might be. And there's a place for all of that. But in the Bible, when it's talking about that, it's in the context, almost always, of sexual immorality. That's the context. And in our culture, where is the place where people are the most reckless when it comes to their bodies? Someone might say fast food. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking God's beautiful design for sex those created for the context of a man and a woman who are married to each other until death do them part and saying, God, no thank you. I don't want what you've given me. I want to take that design and take it somewhere else. He says, flee from this. He's, again, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. That's not his heart. He's saying, please flee from this. This is not the way of the Lord. God, God cares for you. He's saying, you know what? Sex is not for ready people or mature people or in love people, that it's for married people. And this is how God has designed it to be. Thank God that there is grace in our sin. And in that grace, he warns us of what it looks like to depart from his design. Look at cults, for example. Like a lot of most, like 
crazy cults that end really poorly and make the news. You know what one of the major tenets of cult practice usually is? All kinds of sexual morality. Where the leader has like 50 sexual partners. Th they treat like different weird kind of things I don't want to talk about because it's a family atmosphere. Uh, you know, kind of, kind of initiatives and things that they treat them as holy and like some kind of worship type of thing. Cults. A marker of a cult is running away from God's design when it comes to this. And he has a solution, verse two of chapter seven, because sexual immorality is so common, it's everywhere in Corinth. Guess what? I'm not instituting anything new. We're going back to how I designed it to be in the, we're just reminding you, he says, remember, don't you know? Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. That's God's remedy. That's God's answer. That's God's design. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. Husbands, you're welcome. I expect you to tithe because of that statement. There you go. Uh, verses eight through 10 now talks about food. It talks about food, but not what you should eat in terms of should it be organic or not. He says this, now about food sacrifice to idols. There's a controversy going on because many people who were Jewish and, and came to faith and then Gentiles who were coming to faith had different exposures and different backgrounds and different experiences before becoming Christians. So some people were struggling with the fact of going to someone's house for dinner when they knew that food had been sacrificed to idols. These unbelievers who would like take the food and before they made it and they would kind of present it to some false god or some statue and there were some people going, ah, I don't feel uncomfortable, I don't want to eat that. It's like I got a kind of conviction here and the others were going, oh, who cares? It's not real, it's, not real. it's a statue. Who cares? Eat the food. Christian people having different matters of conscience over an issue. And Paul got word this is a thing. So he says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. He says, but be careful, because people who are going, oh, theologically it's fine, dude, just get over it. Like, come on, haven't you read the Bible? Just eat the daggum food, it's not a real God. He says, knowledge puffs up. We wanna love each other as a church. He says, love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. Because it's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That our knowledge of the things of God should point us to want to love our church members and neighbors more. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. He goes, about eating food sacrificed to idols. He's answering questions from their letter. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And there is no God but one. Like, we know it's just a statue. Like, let's be real. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and earth, as there are many gods and many lords, he's being sarcastic, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. He goes, however, not everyone has this knowledge. There's folks who are maybe babies in the faith. They have not studied as much as you have. Or maybe they have a background that kind of triggers something when they think about food and idols. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now, so they were saved from, that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscious being weak is defiled. It's kind of like a PTSD. Like all they know is idol worship from their past. 
They've been saved now, so now when they see fellow Christians doing that, it brings up these past memories. Because food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. The ones who won't eat the food are not more spiritual than the ones who do, and vice versa. Because be careful of this right of yours. Like you have a right, you have a liberty in Christ to eat the food, and no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Where someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, a brother or sister for whom Christ died, family here, whose life was purchased by Christ, he says, is ruined by your knowledge. Their conscience is violated. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters, he's saying you're sinning now because of this. And wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother and sister to fall, I'll never again eat meat, so I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. He's saying it's not worth it out of love. The closest thing I can think of right now in our culture might be alcohol. The Bible allows Christians to drink alcohol. The only people who would argue that are Christians in the geographical South. It's cultural. The Bible also gives extreme warnings about the dangers of alcohol. So as a Christian, do you have the liberty to not get drunk and follow the laws of the land and of age have a glass of wine? Yeah, you absolutely do. Jesus drank wine. It was real wine. You definitely do. But what if there's somebody around you that was saved out of alcoholism? Like, do you really think it's okay to order a drink in front of that person? Like, is it really worth it just to have that drink? Like, is, it, is alcohol that important to you? Why would you want to violate someone's conscience, put them in a bad situation, maybe cause them to stumble when it's been a real issue throughout their life? What he's saying here is my love for that person is more important than my personal liberty in that moment. He says love is the driver. Why? Because again, we ultimately don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Christ. And then he concludes, there's a lot more, and again, it's snapshot sermons here. But he then gets really serious about the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. He says, brothers, I want to make clear to you Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. Again, he's writing to believers here, struggling believers, but believers. By which you are being saved, if you hold the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Like the measure of which you're going to be legit or not is whether you actually hold on to these teachings. If you don't hold on to these teachings, I'm going to assume when he became a believer, he didn't really become a believer. He says, you believed in vain. He says, for I pass on to you as most important. Notice he starts with divisions, and now he's ending, kind of circling back and saying, this is our focus. This is the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he lets us know that we're not crazy for thinking this, then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them were still alive, as in go ask them. 
but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all is the one born at the wrong times, and I just missed him in the bodily form. He also appeared to me. I'm, I don't have any background in law or how trials work, but if you bring 500 witnesses to a case, I'm guessing it's over. Like, like can we settle, plea deal, plea, like, you know, I, 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 ball game, right? Like, forget about it. It's like Michael Jordan has the ball with three seconds left. It's over, right? It's that, uh, even better, Tom Brady has the ball with a minute left. Ball game, okay? That kind of idea. He said, it's true, and our faith's based on this. And he goes, and I'm gonna own this. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Easter's fake, if it's not real, if Christ hasn't been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. As in, we're wasting our time if there is no resurrection. Moreover, if we're found to be false, we're found to be false witnesses about God. So we testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, because you're still in your sins. You're not forgiven, because Jesus isn't really the one. It's unbelievable. And then he goes in verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied, people should feel bad for us, because we're following a hoax. Then he says in verse 32, let's own it, Corinth. Live in this hip, cosmopolitan, life kind of city. He goes, if the dead are not raised, if there's no Easter, if there's no heaven for us, he goes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Who cares? YOLO, right? You only live once. You go do you. Do whatever you want to do. Because nobody has been raised, and that changes everything. Because it means he's exactly the one he claimed to be. Then in 2 Corinthians, he opens his letter, and he's hurting. Because he's found, he's going through lots of trials, lots of tribulations, and he's found out that the Corinthians are not responding to his corrections and to his teachings. He's hurt by this. He goes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Usually he gives a greeting. Instead, he's going straight to God. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul, as he's suffering and hurting, says this. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. God doesn't just comfort us for the sake of comfort. It's almost like a pay it forward kind of comfort. He comforts us and then we comfort others. He goes, for just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. As our trials increase, God's love and grace in our lives increases. He says, this is what we hold to and it's not Christian cliche. It's not just things we say to make somebody feel better when things go wrong. He says this to assure them. He says, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. That every promise that God has made to us in the scriptures is answered ultimately in Jesus Christ. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. We see Paul Paul say this, and in fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you for another painful visit. It's just too much. He loves these people. He loves this church. He's gonna write to them instead of coming back to them because of the pain that's been caused. But here's what he's saying. We skip to chapter four. He says, therefore, he goes, we don't give up. He's talking about the greatness of Christ, how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was happened with Moses in the Old Testament. He goes, because of all this, he goes, we don't, we don't give up. 
even though our outer person is being destroyed, like we're getting older and we have ailments and we're suffering and we're seeing the, res the results of a fallen world, our inner person is being renewed day by day because God has our hearts and God has a place prepared for us as all the promises of Christ are yes and amen. And he says this, and Paul's been through it, y'all. I mean, he has been through so much, I mean, like jailed, beaten, almost died several times, sickness, so many things. Listen to his words for our momentary light affliction. Now, he's not trying to lessen people's pain or undermine it. He's seeing this, and he says in the rest of the sentence, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So what, how he can say it's a light affliction is he's comparing it to life forever with God. It's so hard for me to think about eternity sometimes. I'm thinking about like where I'm going to lunch today, right? Like what NFL games I'm going to watch. I mean, you got just, those, those are like the basic things. And you have the major things in your life, making sure that your school's taken care of, kids, family. But like there's so many things to think about. It's hard to think about eternity. But that's always Paul's solution is to point us there, to send our minds there. Because we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Until we believe that this world is temporary, we're always gonna have a temptation to think, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if instead we actually believe that it's of eternal significance, we have much purpose every day for this life. He says this about us. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is some of the best words of the gospel in all the Bible. Not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. That God does not count our sins against us because they were counted against Christ who never sinned. And now he calls us to be the bringers of that message of reconciliation. Because therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. This is how God sees us. He's telling these fallen Christians that. that you have a greater calling in this life. You're God's ambassadors. You're his representatives. Since God's making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, that that is our message. Then he talks about the great exchange, that he made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us. So in him we might become the righteousness of God, that he received that Jesus took on our sin, even though he never sinned, the punishment for our sin, and we received his righteousness. Then he tells them, let's go forward, let's build the church. So in 2 Corinthians 9, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. He calls the Christians to give to the mission, not even out of duty or obligation, but because of who, how, the fact that you've been saved by God and you're a grateful person and want to see the church go forward. You're a cheerful giver. And then he addresses false teaching as I close out here. There's a group of people that were called the super apostles and they were given that name because of their rhetorical skills. Very charismatic. They were very captivating to people. Told them what they wanted to hear. And Paul's just going, he's like upset. He's like, I've labored with you for a year and a half written you these letters and you're following these guys? Who are preaching a false message. He goes, for a person comes, 2 Corinthians 11, and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach. Or you receive a different spirit which you had not received or a different gospel which you had not accepted. He goes, you put up with it splendidly. What has happened to you? Why are you falling for this stuff, hook, line, and sinker? 
And he goes, therefore, I will, most, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. I'm not trying to be a super apostle. I'm not trying to be impressive. He goes, so that Christ's power may reside in me. Remember in chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, world's wisdom, God's wisdom. Because so I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties. Why? For the sake of Christ. Because when I'm weak, he's strong. Then he comes back to his first Corinthians letter and goes, I'll grieve for many who sinned before and have not repented of moral and the moral impurity, sexual immorality, and the sensuality they practiced. I'm still hurting over this, he said. He goes, here's what I want you to do, Christians. He says, please test yourselves, Second Corinthians 13. Please test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Like examine yourselves. Like, like, like see it. I, we live in a world where people will weigh themselves every day. But that's like a high priority, and that's great. How often do we spiritually examine ourselves every day? Am I walking with Christ? Is there sin in my life that needs to be confessed? Am I doing my part in God's mission? Am I being generous? Is church a priority in my life? What's my thought like life? What am I thinking about? What's on my screen? Examine ourselves. Daily, he says, I just want you to see it. I don't want your belief to be in vain, he told them. You got a lot of stuff going on in Corinth. A lot of brokenness, a lot of sin, a lot of departing from God's design. He goes, rather than be defensive, rather than push back, rather than get mad and run out the door and say, I'm gonna go somewhere where they tickle my ears and all this, examine yourselves. Like, like see, if you're with, see if you're with the God and with God's people. And on God's side of things, the scriptures, not the world side of things. And what a practice for us to do regularly, to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, thankful for Jesus. And Lord, right now we examine ourselves. Lord, we ask that there's any wicked way within us, as your word says, that you'll reveal it to us and that we will be people who quickly repent because we know that you love us and that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us that where our sin will continue to abound, that grace abounds even more. So let us see these calls to examine ourselves as a call to grace and a call to return to your love and a call to have our affections grow for the one who truly is the wisdom that this world is looking for. So I pray for all of us together here today. Let us be people who believe the truth of the resurrection, the truth of Christ, and let that be what fuels our decisions and our choices, our lives, our thoughts every single day. Thankful for all of us in the name of Jesus. Amen.